Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. I cannot wait. NFL Network analyst Mark Ross, of course, former vice president of player evaluation for my New York Giants, won two Super Bowl rings with my New York Giants. He's all set to join the show. I'm going to get to my three favorite and three least favorite drafts from this past weekend in my final word. But first, we have to address the ongoing Aaron Rodgers drama. Because Aaron Rodgers has made it very clear that as long as general manager Brian Gutekunst is still employed by the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers will never suit up for Green Bay again. He's played 16 seasons for the Packers. That ties Bart Starr, it ties Brett Favre as the most ever for a Packer quarterback. In just a few months, he could have that record. He could begin his 17th season with Green Bay, and he's made it very clear if Gutekunst is running the show, their general manager since 2018, the man who Aaron Rodgers was outspoken against getting that job, if he's running the show, Rodgers will not be running the show on the field for the Packers. And you know what? Aaron Rodgers right now has all the right in the world to be livid. With the exception of drafting his replacement, Jordan Love, the Green Bay Packers have not drafted an offensive player for Aaron Rodgers to work with since the offensive tackle Derek Sherrod back in 2011, right? And why am I laughing a little bit when when I say Derek Sherrod? Well, the former Mississippi State standout was taken with the first round pick of the Green Bay Packers in 2011. And let's see how that worked out. He went on to play 20 games in his NFL career. 20 games, your first round pick. Now look, I feel awful for the guy. He suffered some brutal injuries, couldn't stay healthy, broke his right leg, but played 20 games, only started once in his entire NFL career, a four or five year career, one start. Even when he was healthy, he was a complete bust. And that is the last time the Green Bay Packers have drafted an offensive player for Aaron Rodgers in the first round. How about the last time before Jordan Love that they drafted an offensive skill player? in the first round. Now, skill player being a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, or tight end, the last time Green Bay took one of those with their first round draft pick before Jordan Love? Oh, Aaron Rodgers himself with the 24th overall pick back in 2005. So yeah, is Aaron Rodgers disgruntled? Is he maybe being a bit of a prima donna? Of course, there could be better ways to handle this, right? Does he have to go in public? Maybe not, but he's got all the right in the world to be absolutely livid with how the show is being run in Green Bay. I mean, he is annually provided no help in the draft by his front office. They ignore his requests. They spit in his face when he says he needs a wide receiver with a pulse besides Devontae Adams. I mean, this is a guy who won a Super Bowl when he had Donald Driver, Greg Jennings, Jermichael Finley. You know, I mean, he had the weapons, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, He had the weapons and the results were there. They haven't made an effort since getting rid of those guys to put the weapons back in place for Rodgers. In fact, Jordy Nelson, you can argue, I mean, is he the best wide receiver that Aaron Rodgers has ever played with? No, it's probably Devontae Adams. And then you can make the argument maybe Greg Jennings ahead of Jordy Nelson. Jennings, of course, in his prime played with Brett Favre also. But Jordy Nelson, while he's not the most talented wideout Rodgers has ever played with, he's probably his favorite target of all time. And you would think Aaron Rodgers would at least get a courtesy call, get a heads up that Jordy Nelson was going to be released by Green Bay. No, he found out the same way you and I found out. And that's his favorite target he's ever thrown to in an incredibly successful three-time MVP winning 16-year career. And he had to read it in the papers or social media that his favorite target, Jordy Nelson, his good friend, was being released by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, This organization has never cared 
about their star quarterback. And look, if you're maybe an old school listener right now, and you listened to what Terry Bradshaw said earlier this week on Moose and Maggie on WFAN about Rodgers being soft and how Bradshaw didn't care who his receivers were, didn't have any say, he went out and won games. Absolutely. First off, Terry Bradshaw, you did have the luxury of one of the best defenses in NFL history when you won your four Super Bowls. So that's, you know, Aaron Rodgers hasn't exactly had that luxury with Green Bay. The game was so different back then. Back then you needed to establish a run game and you needed a great defense. And that was essentially what it took. I mean, look, quarterbacks, of course, didn't hurt. You needed a good quarterback, but the NFL wasn't the passing league that it is nowadays. Also, players didn't have the kind of influence that they have nowadays because it wasn't a passing league, right? Quarterbacks back then were expendable. Quarterbacks back then simply did not have the say across the board that they do today, right? You couldn't, you didn't have to draft a quarterback every year with the first overall pick. You could draft an offensive lineman. Heck, you could draft a a defensive player back then. Nowadays, what, 20 quarterbacks have been taking first overall since 1990? So it's 20 out of 31 first overall draft picks have gone quarterback since 1990. The league is so different from when Terry Bradshaw played. And look, I, I love Terry. He, he's a good guy. He provides incredible analysis. All right, maybe incredible entertainment. I don't know about incredible analysis, but he knows the game of football. He is so wrong here. It's not even funny. Look, Tom Brady told Bill Belichick, the best coach to ever do it, at the NFL level, told him, trade Jimmy Garoppolo or I walk. What happened? Bill Belichick traded Jimmy Garoppolo. Aaron Rodgers watched his successor be drafted on draft night. Again, same thing with Jordy Nelson. Didn't get a courtesy call. Didn't get a courtesy text. Got no heads up, according to Aaron Rodgers, that Jordan Love was going to be drafted that night. Found out the same way we did, social media, watching the draft. That's how he found out that the Green Bay Packers weren't going to make a win-now move and give him some help. Instead, they were going to draft the guy who they see as his eventual replacement. So, again, Terry Bradshaw has a problem with how Rodgers is handling this. Could it be handled better? Absolutely. But do I blame Rodgers? Not one bit. And then Brian Gutekunst has the nerve to come out with the Justin Jefferson report last week, saying that Green Bay was eyeing Justin Jefferson when they drafted Jordan Love a year ago in the 2020 NFL draft, you don't draft the quarterback who you think is your future franchise quarterback as a, oh, we missed our receiver. Well, let's just take a franchise. No, 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 no. Green Bay knew Jordan Love was their guy the entire time going into that draft. All right, franchise quarterbacks don't fall to you. You know going in, you want that guy. You have an idea of approximately where he's going to go, when and where you'll need to trade up to get him. That's all very calculated. So Gutekunst trying to put this sad excuse for an attempted band-aid on the situation by saying that they wanted Justin Jefferson, it's a flat-out lie. And it's insulting to Aaron Rodgers' intelligence. And frankly, it's insulting to our intelligence as the media, as listeners, as fans. Because that was never going to happen. Justin Jefferson was never going to the Green Bay Packers because if they really wanted him, they would have traded up to get him. Right? Justin Jefferson didn't go much higher than Jordan Love went. The Packers were drafting, what, 29th or 30th? And they traded up a few spots to grab Jordan Love. They could have traded up another three, four spots to grab Justin Jefferson when he went in the 20s to Minnesota. All right? To their division rival. If they wanted him that badly, they probably would have tried to prevent their division rival Minnesota Vikings from getting the guy. Just like how the Philadelphia Eagles a few days ago traded up with Dallas, with their own rival to prevent the Giants from getting their guy in Devonta Smith. You know, Gutekunst saying that it's like the boyfriend who lies to his girlfriend's face, right? All she wants is him to put in the effort, right? Him to hold up his end of the bargain in the relationship. Just try to better himself, right? Get off the couch, get off your ass, get a job, go to the gym, work out a bit. It's like he goes to the gym at 8.30 knowing the gym closes at 8. He can say, oh, well, you know, I tried, I went, it was closed. No, you went because it was closed. You said you wanted Justin Jefferson because you don't have him. It's a lot easier to say he was our guy after he's already off the board, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely disgusting how the show is being run in Green Bay, a team that's been to -to back-to-back NFC 
championship games could not be more dysfunctional. I mean, right now they are just a step above the Houston Texans and the Detroit Lions. And the difference between the Green Bay Packers and those teams, it's not the defense. It's not the offensive line. Because by the way, if Aaron Rodgers does come back to Green Bay, he's got no protection. The difference between the Green Bay Packers and the Houston Texans and the Detroit Lions right now in 2021, not talking about the team's incredible history, right now the only difference between those franchises is that the Packers have Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams. And guess what? They're both pissed off. Those guys are a package deal. This is Adams' walk year with Green Bay. Rodgers, of course, has an opt-out coming. I mean, these guys, if one leaves, it's really tough for me to see the other one staying. I do not see these two guys finishing their careers with the Green Bay Packers because of how much of a dumpster fire that organization is. I mean, they try to act like, oh, we're the Green Bay Packers. We have all all the power in this. No, 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 no. The Green Bay Packers right now are nothing without Aaron Rodgers. Jordan Love is a middle-of-the-road quarterback at best. And you're going to mortgage your future for this guy and piss off your three-time MVP for this guy? You know, Aaron Rodgers at 37 years old just won his third league MVP award. And now... He will likely be the first MVP ever to suit up for a different team just one season removed from winning the award. Twice in league history, the MVP hasn't played for the team he won the award for the year after, and those were both retirements, 1960, and then of course Jim Brown, 1965, winning the MVP, you know, one of the best running backs of all time. Each of those instances came to an end because of retirement, not because the franchise didn't know what the hell they were doing and pissed off their reigning MVP. Well, Aaron Rodgers is about to set history, not on the field, but likely off the field, by joining a new team. And the new reports that the Green Bay Packers are upset that teams have been tampering with Aaron Rodgers. First off, I don't want to hear anything about tampering ever again, right? Tampering happens. It's been happening for decades in professional sports. I mean, most notably happens in the NBA all the time, but it's been happening overtly for the past 10-15 years, right? Tampering should no longer be an issue. It happens. It always will happen. Tom Brady tampered with Rob Gronkowski. LeBron James tampered with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Tampering's never going to go away, especially in today's age of technology when you can just text or DM someone and say, hey, I want to play with you. It really is that easy. So to say that Denver and San Francisco, right, two of the three teams on the short list that Rodgers provided Green Bay with, the other team being Vegas, which I don't see that happening. To say Denver and San Francisco are tampering with Rodgers, the funny thing about that is Rodgers is probably tampering with Denver and San Francisco. Rodgers is probably reaching out to Kyle Shanahan and to John Elway and saying, hey, I'm unhappy in my situation. I'd love to come play with you guys, right? I mean, for Shanahan and the 49ers, look, Shanahan is an offensive guru. And Rodgers gets to go home. It's a total win-win all across the board there. For Denver, Rodgers gets to do what Peyton Manning did. Go join John Elway. Go to the Mile High City for the end of your career. And if you can get past Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in your own division, you can go win a Super Bowl. The Broncos have a really good roster. And I think that that roster out in Denver can compete for a Super Bowl if they get a new quarterback, right? I said it last week. All the pieces are there. They have a really good defense. It's why they were great against the spread last year. The Broncos were a cover machine because of their defense. They have plenty of formidable targets at the wide receiver and tight end position. You know, Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant, Deshaun Hamilton and KJ Hamler, the Penn State guys, Tim Patrick, who was a touchdown machine last year. You got Melvin Gordon in the backfield. The O-line is much improved. Garrett Bowles is finally turning into a Pro Bowl caliber offensive tackle. Denver has the pieces. They don't have a quarterback. And if you put Aaron Rodgers under center instead of Drew Locke, well, all of a sudden, the Broncos can compete with the Kansas City Chiefs. And I think that's where Aaron Rodgers belongs. I think they have the draft capital to make the move. I think, unfortunately, they're going to have to send a couple players. Bradley Chubb would probably have to be part of a deal going to Green Bay. And I know you lose a lot by getting rid of Chubb, but at the end of the day, when you already have Von Miller... Who's more important, another pass rusher or Aaron Rodgers? It's a no-brainer, you know? You probably 
have to send over Teddy Bridgewater to mentor Jordan Love. I don't think they're going to miss Bridgewater. He hasn't even suited up for the Broncos yet. And what makes it even more amazing, they now probably get to keep Patrick Sertain because the Packers, instead of taking a wide out with their first round pick this year when plenty were on the board, they took a cornerback in Eric Stokes. And I think Stokes is a beast. I think Stokes will be great. He's no Patrick Sertain. If the Packers could have worked out a deal before the draft, kept that 29th pick, taken a wide out there, and added Sertain with the Broncos pick, that would have been the smart thing to do. They could have even made it a better deal. But look, they're going to get players. They're going to get draft capital no matter where they send Rodgers. I just think that for the Packers, for Aaron Rodgers, and for John Elway, pairing Aaron Rodgers with the Denver Broncos makes the most sense. When we come back, I can't wait for this Mark Ross, former Giants VP of player evaluation, current NFL Network analyst, is all set to join the show. Stick with me, Joe Serralo, right here on Serralo Sports Talk. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. back here on Sorallo Sports Talk and joining the show. He's a two-time Super Bowl champ with my New York Giants, the former VP of player evaluation for Big Blue and current NFL Network analyst. It's Mark Ross. Mark, thanks so much for joining the show. My pleasure, Joe. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. And I want to start with those New York Giants that you spent over a decade with. They just drafted Kadarius Toney with their first round pick, of course, trading back so that the Bears could move up and grab Justin Fields. I think it was a pick that surprised a lot of people. What were your thoughts of the pick? Yeah, definitely. I love the trade, number one, that the, the trade back. That was excellent. But once they did that, I thought it was going to be a quitty pay and yep. who went the very next pick. But I, I thought for certain, you know, I was on a group chat with the, the producers and stuff from the network, the other talent. And I was like, oh, this is quitty pay right here. But it definitely was a surprise. It was Kadarius Tony. I know they had been talking about they, they really wanted one of the two Alabama guys, the receivers. Waddell or Smith so I think they kind of took the wind out of their sails a little bit when the Eagles traded up to take Smith but I, I I didn't think that receiver was that huge of a need to go that route but uh, they you know I thought it'd be pay but for them to come back in the second round and get Ojalari who I know they like uh, there it kind of you could flip either one of those where they addressed two needs they thought they really had which was pass rush and receivers so overall when you take it in the context of just that one pick it was like whoa why did they take him but since they got a pass rusher in the second round I think it worked out well yeah I mean I'm with you the way I see it if you flip the picks and they take Ojolari at 20 and they take Kadarius Tony with their original pick in the second round which I believe was 42nd we'd be pretty happy and same thing can be said for the Raiders almost right with Leatherwood going at 17 and then Mayrig in the second round if you flip those it's not that bad what are your thoughts on their draft? I mean, they took three safeties. They got their guy in Leatherwood. What, what's going on with Gruden and Mayock out in the desert? Yeah, you know, I think if you take each one of their decisions in a bubble, you, you could try to justify. But when you just see a continual pattern of overvaluing, even in the offseason signings, the, the, the huge payments that they've given to guys that haven't panned out, it, you can kind of just go by each one and you say, all right, well, what's going on here? So as a whole, you have to really question what their strategy is, how they're valuing players, both in the draft and in free agency. They did it once again with Leatherwood, who, you know, people were saying if you flip it, but, you know, the, the, the value at where they took Leatherwood to have a safety there, I, I didn't see him there. Some people did, but I didn't see him there. I think he went where he should have went more. In, I'm talking about, so, you know, the justification for Leatherwood saying well, we didn't want to miss out on him. Well, you, you never want to miss out on a player, but that doesn't mean you overvalue. That's when you get into trouble, when you overvalue players because you think you need them or because you, because you fall in love with them, especially when you see the value of the rest of the offensive line that was really into the mid-second, mid all the way into the top of the third, where you had you know, Jalen Mayfield from Michigan go there in the top of the second and 
Brady Christensen from BYU going to the top of the second, who I thought Leatherwood was more comparable to those kind of guys and the other guys that got taken in the second as opposed to being the, the 17th pick in the draft. So even some of the other guys they took, um, you know, the Buffalo defensive end in the third, who I thought really was more of a, you know, sixth, seventh round pick sort of guy where you, the, you just see the continual pattern of the overvaluing, which is the concern. Now, if you do all this and you're 10 and six, Hey, great. You're, you got, you're ahead of the curve, but if you're doing all that and you're eight and eight and six and 10, then it's a big question mark and you have to see what you're really doing. So we'll see how it plays out again next year for them on the field. Yeah. Now, when you talk about overvaluing and this, I guess, brings us back to the giants, you look at Daniel Jones, who was taken sixth a couple of years ago. And, you know, I, I know I hated the pick. I had a early second round grade on Daniel Jones and you know, maybe I'm just spoiled because as you can see with the jersey behind me, I got to watch a Hall of Fame quarterback for most of my life, a guy who I'm sure you know very well in Eli Manning. How long is the leash on Jones now that he's got the weapons around him? It's got to be this year. This is it. And and they've signed Galladay, now they've taken Tony. you got Ingram coming back, Saquon's coming back. So you've got all this, and they believe in the offensive line that they've drafted the last couple of years. And that, I think that's still a question mark, but they believe in that. So they feel like they've given him all the resources he has to succeed. And again, you've seen, you know, guys that you know, Sam Darnold's going out of New York. He was, he was the second, third pick in the draft who people thought should have been up there. Well, now it's different with someone like Daniel Jones, who, as you mentioned, where really the Giants were the only team that had him valued that high. So now the pressure is really on. And especially when you just see, you know, there's only so much a quarterback is going to improve with people around him. It has to be things that they improve upon. And when you watch Daniel Jones, it's Kadarius Tony's not going to help him when he gets hit and he fumbles the ball. Mm-hmm. Kenny Galladay's not going to help him throwing the ball into coverage, you know, when he's not looking at anybody else. Uh, Saquon Barkley's not going to help him with his pocket presence. So those are the things that when you watch Daniel Jones that you see glaring each game that say he has to improve on those things himself. No one around him can help him with that. And that still remains to be seen, whether those are sort of traits he will be able to improve. So now you mentioned the offensive line. Obviously, Dave Gettleman, you know, he always talks about loves his hog mollies. He seems to be content with the group he has. When the Giants traded back to 20, I'm thinking quitty pay just like you at 20. And then I'm thinking a tackle, maybe a guy like a Tevin Jenkins or a Liam Eikenberg who can play guard or tackle with the second round pick. What do you think about this unit? Were you surprised that they didn't address it? Yeah, I think it got it, it got pretty much ignored because I think the Giants had, they believe that they are, those guys are the answers up there. And they you didn't hear any writing about it because I think they kind of got all the media to kind of ignore it, not write more about it to create sort of a stir, but when you look at really who they have up front there, uh, you know, Andrew Thomas was a big disappointment last year. Kind of got better for a stretch, but then was really struggled again at the end there. Uh, Hernandez has really been a disappointment. Got benched, you know, second round pick. It doesn't look like he he got benched for a guy who really, I think, is a backup talent in Lemieux. You know, Gates, the center, really, I think, is a backup talent. And then you're going on to the right side with, uh, you know, Matt Pert, who – you know, he's still a long ways away as well. And then they, they let go uh, of Zeitler. So I think there's more of a question mark coming and more question marks coming in this year with they're really all those guys are unproven, but also what are they really starting caliber talent with those guys up front? You know, Andrew Thomas better be, he was the fourth pick in the draft and Tristan Wirfs went after him, Makai Beckton, who both of those guys look like they're going to be perennial Pro Bowl players. So I think there's a lot of question marks there. And yeah, it wasn't surprising. I thought they would have addressed it, but it seemed like it was just ignored throughout the process. Yeah. I mean, look, you just went through that entire offensive line. Seems like we're a long way away from uh, going David Deal to Kareem McKenzie down the offensive line. It's an interesting group. And no matter how good your skill players are, you know, you could have Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, but if you have to run 500 yards in the Super Bowl and you can't get it to those guys, it's tough to win games. So how do you see the Giants competing? in a pretty weak NFC East. Yeah, I think Dallas is the, the the clearly the best team in the division, and that's because Dak coming back. I mean, they still had a chance at the end there to win with Andy Dalton. You know, so <laughs> it's the worst defense in the league and Andy Dalton at quarterback, and they still had a chance to win the NFC East towards the end there. So I think with Dak coming back, they drafted all defense there in this draft. They have to be better. I think that with Dan Quinn coming there, 
they will it'll definitely help the defense. So I, I think Dallas is there with Washington. I think they're deep. They could have the best defense in the league. I mean, we saw what they did last year. Those young guys will be even better. And then I love Jamin Davis from Kentucky, who will just clean up all kinds of tackles. I mean, you talk about explosive now on the field and all over the place. He's going to have a, a ton of tackles next year, just playing behind those guys, signing William Jackson in the offseason. I think they're going to be even better on defense, and their defense will carry him with games. It's just that Fitzpatrick, it's going to be the same thing. I, you know, they've kind of convinced themselves, but it's still going to be the same Ryan Fitzpatrick just because he's been the Eagles I'm a little shaky with, you know, and then the Giants, it just boils down to, you know, Daniel Jones. I think with their defense last year, they kind of worked a lot of magic and did a lot of trickery with their D to kind of keep them in games. But again, it's going to boil down to Daniel Jones and if he can get it done. And I'm just not so sure of that. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. I love the defense, but I just don't know if Jones is the guy to lead the team. Now, you mentioned Dallas being the favorite. How much did their draft surprise you going with two inside linebackers, Micah Parsons, Jabril Cox, when they already have Van Der Esch and they already have Jalen Smith? I mean, did that see, that felt like the only part of the defense that they didn't need to address. Did it surprise you that they went there, so that they invested yeah, so heavily? Definitely. I thought they needed more pass rush. Uh, but then after you saw it, they didn't pick up Van Der Esch's fifth-year option. So that kind of was the, the, the writing on the wall right there of why they did it. And then they came out and said they didn't pick it up. But and then the rest of the way, they just kind of kept, you know, all D, all D. But I think with Dan Quinn, the year that they won the Super Bowl with Seattle, he was a D coordinator. And they had Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright and Malcolm Smith, who was a Super Bowl MVP, unbelievably. But <laughs> Bruce Irvin. So I think he's just looking at it like that, having those linebackers that are kind of versatile and move those guys around to have a similar sort of, of group there with Dallas, kind of replicate that. You know, it's funny, and I want to just stray away for a second because you mentioned Malcolm Smith unbelievably winning that Super Bowl MVP award. Last week, I had Trey Wingo on the show, and we got into the discussion of Super Bowl MVPs and how, you know, Julian Edelman won a Super Bowl MVP in a game where he didn't score a touchdown. They won 13-3, and the defense was phenomenal. How this year, Tampa Bay, you could have picked five guys on the defense to get the Super Bowl MVP award. None of them got it. Of course, it was Brady. What are your thoughts on the Super Bowl MVP? Like, where do they get these choices from? Yeah, it's just in the moment. Uh, feel, you know, they hand out a sheet and you just, just got to fill it out. And I think people kind of get caught up in the, the moment of what it is and who really won. I mean, we could talk about our 07 Super Bowl where if you really watch Eli, he didn't have a great game. He, you know, and it's um, he should have threw the pick, you know, the pick at the end and Asante Samuel drops and then. <laughs> You know, the, the, the lucky throw, the, the helmet catch. But when you looked at how Tuck played and how, you know, a bunch of other guys played that, you know, our defense, we, you know, we had 10 points going into the last drive of the game. So, but it was because it was Eli Manning and this was his coronation and all that. They, they had to give him the MVP. So I think a lot of that plays into it. Tampa Bay last year, no matter what Brady did, they were going to give him the MVP. No matter how well Shaq Barrett and Devin White played, they were going to give the, the MVP to Tom Brady. And a lot of times those sort of awards are more about the popularity than actual the play. Yeah. No, I mean, it amazed me that Malcolm Smith got it in a year when they won, what, like 43 to 8? And then <laughs> Malcolm Butler seals the deal for New England and Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl MVP that year. Yeah. So yeah. It, it makes no sense. I'm glad you brought Justin Tuck up, though. Because Trey said that he thought Tuck should have been the MVP of Super Bowl 46, the second go around, whereas I kind of thought that Tuck had his better Super Bowl, Super Bowl 42. I mean, you guys moved him inside on a lot of snaps, and that was like his coming out party to me. So yeah, yeah, that first Super Bowl for him was more so because we had Stray and and OC, and so Tuck was versatile. But we did that with with him. That that next go round as well, just because we had JPP, we had Lim, people forget Linval Joseph was on that team, and, yep. and Matthias and OC was still there. So both times we kind of Tuck was Tuck and OC were there, but then we kind of mixed mixed and matched, you know, trade Stray out for JPP, and so you know Fred Robbins was on that first team, so that we kind of had a nice mix of guys, and Tuck just had that versatility just because of his, he was so big and his body build, and he was strong in there and quick. Uh, you know, more even most a better pass rusher inside than he was outside just because he could use his quickness more, but he had the strength. You know, people think in the NFL, you just don't run by people to get that. I mean, you rarely see that. You have to have some balance and strength and leverage once the blockers get on you to fight through that. 
and still maintain your rush lanes and get to the quarterback. And Justin was able to do that really well on the inside. You know, Mark, I never thought we'd be sitting here talking about Justin Tuck. Uh, just a couple of days removed from the 2021 NFL draft. But, you know, I'm a huge Giants fan. I had Tuck on my show ahead of Super Bowl 54 at Radio Row in Miami. And uh, he's one of my favorites of all time. First jersey I ever owned was a Justin Tuck jersey. So I have to ask because I defend him tirelessly. And I don't know if everyone appreciates how great he was. If Flozell Adams doesn't trip him, is Justin Tuck a Hall of Famer? Wow, that's that's tough to say, you know, Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought that I thought he was never the same after that. Interview. Yeah, yeah, he did hit a point where it was just kind of he just kept getting banged up and he just could never get quite right just with his body and, and staying healthy. And, you know, he ended up going to Oakland. But, uh, yeah, you know, Hall of Fame might be strong. He would have been a perennial Pro Bowl guy. But I don't know Hall of Fame, but yeah, he was a heck of a player when he was when he was on. He was he was a, he was a problem. Yeah, he was one of my favorites to watch. When I started watching, it was Strahan's last two years, I guess. And so Tuck kind of came right up and was that guy I just attached myself to. Let's get back to the draft. Who had the best draft, in your opinion, last weekend? Man, there's a lot of good choices. I think a lot of teams really you know, knocked it out. But I've been saying the Bears, just because yep. it was more than just on the field. They saved their organization. that They wanted to that, saving their jobs. I was saying you know, the day before it started, okay, which team is going to move? I said, it's got to be the Bears. I said, there's no way Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace, Matt Nagy, the head coach, Ryan Pace, the GM, are going into the season saying, we're on thin ice the last few years, and Andy Dalton is going to save our job. I said, there's absolutely no way they can let that happen. I said, they got to be the team that makes the move. So when they traded up to get fields, I thought that was more than just on the field. It was, hey, we got to save our jobs with this guy. And I just love Justin Fields as a player. I think he should have been the third pick in the draft, at least uh, right there. So I think he's perfect just on the field with, with the production, the pedigree he's had, the character. And he's been a star his whole life. So that Chicago, going into that situation in Chicago, a lot of the times with quarterbacks, it's not just about what you do on the field. It's your whole entire aura and your presence. So him going into Chicago, I think, is just – it won't phase him, you know, Big Ten, all that whole deal, five-star recruit that he's perfect for that city. I couldn't agree with you anymore. And, you know, Justin Fields was my number two quarterback in this draft. So being the former VP of player evaluation for the Giants, how did the Jets come to the conclusion that Zach Wilson was their guy when you have a kid like Fields out there who doesn't know how to lose, you know, who wins it at the top level of competition in college football, or I guess second to top level of competition in the Big Ten. I mean, how does Zach Wilson overtake him? Yeah, it's um, it's the the whole Justin Fields thing. It was just bizarre, just how he just kept get, getting kind of dragged through the whole process while other people, namely Trevor Lawrence, didn't at all. I've never been, never evaluated a process or seen a prospect go through a draft process who I thought had some major flaws, just absolutely just not get critiqued at all. And when you talk about Justin Fields with Trevor, I mean, they even in high school, it was always who's number one, one or two with the, the recruiting services, just going into it. And then when you saw those two guys on the field together this year, you say, who's better? Well, that guy, Justin Fields, is a, he's the best player on the field by far. And it reminded me of when Deshaun Watson was at Clemson those two years where they played Bama. And it was like, this guy is the best player on the field with all these NFL players by far. But yet he got dragged through the process for other things. And I think this could end up similar, similarly to that with Justin, where everybody saw it. Everybody saw it every time you saw Ohio State play that the guy was the best player on the field, uh, that he should be, you know, up in there, but for some reason got got diminished. So with Zach Wilson, I do like Zach Wilson. I have to give I have to give him credit though. When I first watched him at BYU, started hearing the buzz, I'm like, right, let me watch this little guy from BYU. He can't be much. It's like, oh wow. You know, this guy is pretty special. So I think he does some special things um, for that. So I think early in the process, I think the Jets just kind of zeroed in on him and, the, and what he could do. And he does have some innate traits that you just can't teach. And I think they kind of fell in love with that. Yeah, I mean, if they're looking for, you know, the second coming of Broadway Joe, I mean, he's got the flash. But to me, for Justin Fields, the six touchdowns against an elite Clemson defense with his ribs crushed, I mean – it speaks for itself. It's one of the best games you'll ever see a quarterback play, and that just got ignored. Now, you, you mentioned flaws with Trevor Lawrence. I'm, I'm curious, what are those flaws? 
Yeah. So, okay, let's just break it down. You know, so you you, you look at quarterbacks and what, is, what did Zach Wilson get banged on? Well, BYU doesn't play anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Clemson beat people by 30 points a game. The ACC is not good. So no. <laughs> people think here the ACC, but it's not good at all. I mean, they won by 30 points a game. So really, it was just seven on seven all the time for Trevor Lawrence for there. Then you heard the criticism of Justin Fields. Well, he always thir- throws his first read, right? He can't see the second, third read. Well, when you watch Trevor Lawrence, he threw to his first read more than any of these guys by far in this draft. And it wasn't just throwing to those guys first read. It was with absolutely no pressure on 95% of his throws with two or three multiple open, wide open receivers on just about every throw that he had. So things were just so easy for him. It's almost like he's he he's a rhythm with that's so slow. So when you saw teams that could actually speed him up, speed up the process that he has to, okay, make a quick decision and get the ball out, find the guy. He really struggled with that to really be a playmaker. And that's what the NFL is. It's not the easy throws, the layups, as I call it. It's when you have to beat someone off the dribble, when you have to hit a three with someone in your face. That's what a quarterback has to do. And Trevor Lawrence just did not display that to the degree that Justin Fields did, certainly, or even Zach Wilson. So, And then the final piece of it was we were talking to the, the media, everyone talking about Trevor Lawrence being this generational talent. And going back to his freshman year, everything you always kind of heard was about his freshman, freshman year, winning national championship. Okay, well, his two, biz- two biggest exposures the last two years, when he really did have to step up his game, was against LSU in the national championship game last year, where Joe Burrow absolutely torched Clemson. And Trevor Lawrence did not step up his game and show that he could match Joe Burrow. He looked like, ah, this guy's okay, but he really struggled that game. And then this year against Ohio State, as you mentioned, the Justin Fields game where it was clear who was the best player on the field. It wasn't Trevor Lawrence. It was Justin Fields. And Trevor Lawrence really struggled to take his game up another level. So those were the, all those things together were concerns for me that just did not get talked about. And uh, just kind of got ignored uh, throughout the whole process. So it'll be interesting to see once he gets to the league, once he starts facing this constant messiness of what a quarterback has to face if he can actually step up his game speed up his game to match the level um, because in my view he really has not shown it on the the big games where guys kind of got after him yeah and he's coming from a program in Clemson that faces little to no adversity going to Jacksonville where you're facing adversity seemingly every season every week (laughs) so it's definitely going to be interesting one thing I want to address with Justin Fields off the field Recently, leading up to the draft, there seemed to be a lot of questioning his commitment to football, uh, how invested he was, how much he wanted to be there. Yet Trevor Lawrence came out a couple weeks ago, and I hammered this on my show last week, and said that football doesn't define him, which I don't think there's anything wrong with Trevor Lawrence saying. Had Justin Fields made those remarks, it would have crushed him. And I mean, and that's yep, and that's what I'm getting at as far as just the lack of critique. But not only that, but taking something that for another player, Justin Fields, not even say, just someone just randomly saying this about him that wasn't absolutely not true, but people then started defining him by that. But yet here it is, Trevor Lawrence just actually says this. He actually says this now. This comes out of his mouth, but it gets turned into a positive. It gets turned into a, a, a character trait like, wow, this is so admirable for Trevor Lawrence. So in a bubble, sure, it's fine. You can say that, but not right on the heels of Justin Fields getting completely destroyed over not even something that he said it was just totally false so that's where again where I get back to that he's kind of skated through this whole process of not even getting critiqued but then something he's offering up to you saying this could be a negative for another player and getting lauded for it so it's it's it was the confirmation bias with everyone I think in the media even personnel with coaches that this guy's the second coming since he was a freshman so we all want to be on this this train of, yes, he is, yes, he is, and ignoring some of the things and not wanting to see or, or believe some of the things that could be negative about him, but just going with all with the confirmation of, yes, he is the greatest, yes, he's the greatest, yes, he's the greatest. And also the other point that you know I, I nailed last week was that without Justin Fields, there's no Big Ten season, right? I mean, the Big Ten was late to the party, the last power conference to say, all right, although the Pac-12 might have been a little later but essentially one of the final two power conferences to say we're going to play football. And that was all because of Justin Fields. So no question. Yeah. I, I mean, since it's my show and I don't know if you want to come on here and say it, I'm going to say it. 
how much does that have to do with race questioning his you know his commitment to the game when there would have been no season in the Big Ten without Justin yeah. Fields yeah well that yeah I've talked about it plenty on air and stuff about the, the race issue the race factor with it and you know Justin Fields is everything you want in a player on and off the field and mm-hmm. he was just the latest in the year and you can go back to Lamar Jackson and all these others where the race comes in well they, they don't prepare and they're not smart and it's we've been hearing about this forever and there is something to that 100 and you don't hear it about any white quarterbacks you know Mac Jones has had DUIs did we yeah. ever hear about that at all in the draft process no why if Justin Fields would have had a DUI We'd have been talking about, does he need counseling? Could he handle going to Chicago, drinking all of it? You would have heard all that. And it's just the the unfair bias that gets placed on black quarterbacks by the media, by unnamed sources, whatever. That's a pattern. Again, if you take all these things in a vacuum, you can explain it away. But when it keeps happening over and over and over again, it's systemic and it's, it's targeted and, it, and it's real. I couldn't agree anymore. Look, if there was no bias, Deshaun Watson would have been the first quarterback drafted. Mitch Trubisky looked more like one. Everyone who watched college football knew who the best quarterback was. And actually, I'm I'm wrong because Patrick Mahomes has been the best quarterback from that class. But out of the two of them, it was Watson over Trubisky clear as day. I mean, I had Lamar as my third quarterback in that stack draft class. You know, I had I had Darnold first. I had Baker second. And then I thought Lamar was third. Well, right now, Lamar's the only one with an MVP. Yeah, yeah. It speaks for yeah, itself. It's still, it's still real. It's still alive. And it's not just in the NFL. It's in society. It's in any sort of workplace hiring uh, workplace that you can think of. There's plenty of biases in hiring practices in the NFL and, uh, you know, it, in Wall Street, wherever you go. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's the reality. Hey, Mark, I want to know back to the draft. What was the biggest surprise for you? this past weekend in terms of a guy slipping. I mean, you know, we mentioned Ojolari before to the Giants. You know, I didn't think he'd be around where they took him in the second round. Which which fall was the most surprising to you? It wasn't, um, I wouldn't say a fall, but Jalen Phillips going to Miami at 18, just because he was, the, in my view, the best pass rusher in the draft. I, I didn't think it was like a stellar DN class like years before with Bosa's and Miles Garrett's and, and, and uh, Chase Young last year, you know, where you had some surefire guys. But I thought someone would jump up there for Phillip Phillips earlier just because he was the best guy. So with Miami being able to get him at 18, I thought it was just, you know, that was a tremendous, tremendous value uh, for them. Um, you know, even a, a Rashawn Slater at 13 going to, to uh, the Chargers, I thought was unbelievable value where I thought he was the best tackle in the draft. And, you know, I know Sewell had the hype for so many years, the greatest guy of all time. But when you just watch those guys, I thought Rashawn Slater was a better player um, and a surefire fire perennial Pro Bowl player. So I think just those just when you look, when you always want to draft, you want to get great value. And I just thought Slater at 13, uh, Phillips at 18 were, were just tremendous value. Can I ask about Slater? What, in your opinion, makes him better than Sewell? Because I thought that they were both top eight picks. I think that they're both extraordinary. But Sewell, to me, like every year I look at a class outside of quarterbacks and I say, this guy's a Hall of Famer, right? Last year, Chase Young was my, this guy's going to be a Hall of Famer. And this year, for me, it was Panay Sewell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he's 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 big. He does have some talent. I just, just for me, Slater, he just played with much better balance. He played. Mm-hmm. He was more productive consistently. He played on his feet better than Sewell. Um, so and a lot of the funny thing is when they talked about, well, Slater can't play tackle because he's only got, you know, he got short arms. Their arm length is a quarter of an inch difference. So he's <laughs> 33 and Sewell is 33 and a quarter. So it's like, there are much. Okay, you know what? We'll put him inside there too. So, yeah, I just thought Slater just kind of is the 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 – epitome of just when you watch the guy with talent production uh consistency feel for the game that I just thought he was just uh just a little bit better than Sewell interesting I mean look his 2019 tape against Chase Young speaks for itself so it's hard to argue with you there hey Mark before we wrap things up we've got to get to the biggest news in the NFL right now Aaron Rodgers right he reportedly has told the Green Bay Packers that he wants out even provided them a short list of three teams Denver Vegas San Francisco that he'd like to play for how serious is Aaron about this and what's the likelihood that 
he suits up for Green Bay come week one. Yeah, this is just turning into more of a mess each day. And uh, this is soap opera drama. And yeah, I guess this is uh, he's he's creating a lot of this behind the scenes and stuff. And you see stuff today about tweets that he he talked about criticizing the GM again and, and calling him Jerry Krause and stuff. So I don't know. It's just it's just a mess. At first, I'm thinking it, it'll get worked out. But the more you hear about it, it seems as if it won't. And I don't know. Green Bay, they drafted Jordan Love last year. It's like they have a backup plan for it already. If they can get a haul for him at this point. Uh, but, you know, will it turn into a personality a, a contest with, OK, Green Bay? Like, you know what? We won't trade you. You either sit and, and uh, don't do anything. So it, it seems like it might be heading that route more so where. Green Bay just won't do anything now. If Aaron's going to treat them like this, like why will we acquiesce to what you want and, and your demands? So I don't know. Each day just kind of flips and changes for me where I don't have a prediction on it. But I, I, I would say likelihood he, he might not have a, a jersey on at all next year. Oh, wow. I mean, I haven't heard that yet. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, Denver, John Elway, bringing him in just the way he brought in Peyton seems to be the fit. And I'm starting to agree with that. You think there's a legitimate the Packers chance? hold all the cards. The Packers don't have to do anything. So it's, uh, you know, if they get the right haul for them, sure, they should do that for the sake of the organization. But if someone doesn't come correct, they Aaron Rodgers really has no leverage but to just keep coming out in the public like he's doing and, uh, you know, kind of looking a little bit bad, in, in my view, with some of the stuff he's coming out with, a little petty with some of the stuff he's coming out with. So it'll be interesting. So there is one other big-name quarterback who might not be playing week one. And he dominated the news cycle a couple of weeks ago. Things have quieted down a bit. What do you think about Deshaun Watson? Where is well, that situation? Obviously that hasn't gone away. It's going to, it's going to keep yeah. continuing. And I most certainly don't think he'll be on the field next year. I don't, I don't see how this gets resolved anytime quickly. I mean, this is just too big of a story, too important of a situation, too delicate of a situation for, uh, them to to move forward with this as far as putting him on the field or him coming back it has to be resolved um, obviously it's unfortunate for both sides whatever the story is so I, I definitely can't foresee that and I mean you just talk about you know things just changing in an instant in the NFL where you just you just never know you know people try to predict and say this thing but you just never know in the NFL what's going to happen and Deshaun Watson clearly is you know, from a few months ago, just talking about getting out of there. Now it's like, whoa, you know, is this guy going to, you know, what's going to happen to his, his life? So, yeah, it's not, it's, uh, it's unfortunate on both sides. It really is. This is one I never saw coming. I've, I've met him a couple of times and I always thought that character was one of the first words that came to mind when you thought of Deshaun Watson. To see this, is, it's really upsetting. No question. It's, and that's and that's what the thing with the whole scouting process. You can dig, dig on people, dig on players, and you always think you know someone but you never know the true story with people. So that's the truth. Look for all the best NFL coverage. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Mark Ross. Mark, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure, Joe. Take care. I'll be right back here on Sorello Sports Talk. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word right here on Sorallo Sports Talk. What an incredible interview right there with Mark Ross. I mean, that was by far the most critique I've ever heard of Trevor Lawrence. We couldn't agree more on Justin Fields being a future superstar in this league. I love diving into my Giants, getting to talk about, you know, one of my favorite players of all time, like Justin Tuck with him. That was a blast. And interestingly enough, we do not exactly see eye to eye. I mean, you heard in my monologue, when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, I think that the Green Bay Packers are totally in the wrong, that they have handled this terribly from the top down. And he thinks that Rodgers is being a bit of a drama queen, which look, I can understand. I just think that at this point with what he has done for that team on the field year in, year out, enough is enough. But it's time right here in my final word for my three least favorite drafts from last weekend and my three favorite drafts. Now, a quick disclaimer, three teams that I'm not going to include. The Rams, 
the Houston Texans and the Seattle Seahawks. They just didn't have enough draft capital, didn't get involved until either late in the second or early in the third round. I mean, look, you can trash them for not having the draft capital. You can trash the Houston Texans for giving away their first and second round picks that both would have been very valuable picks, especially now that it looks like Deshaun Watson will not be their quarterback in September, whether he's on another team or not playing at all. I mean, the fact that they gave both of those picks up for Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills, yes, you can say the Texans had the worst draft out of anyone, but because I'm only evaluating the players that were selected and these three dogs were in the fight way too late, not going to count them. My third worst draft from last weekend, it's the Indianapolis Colts. And the ironic thing is, I love their pick. I wanted their pick in the first round. I wanted Quiddy Pay to go one slot earlier to my New York Giants. Mark Ross thought Quiddy Pay was the guy going to the Giants. Love that pick. It was what happened after the Colts selected Quiddy Pay. You know, the Colts, to me, their two most glaring needs going into this draft were a blindside left tackle to protect their new guy, Carson Wentz, who again, you know, you know this, if you know me, I'm not a fan of Carson Wentz. I don't believe in Carson Wentz at all, but they need to protect him. If he's going to have any success there on what is a really good roster, they need to watch his blind side. They didn't take an offensive tackle until Wolf Rise in the seventh round. I mean, is Sam Tevy? is he going to be the guy right now on their depth chart? He's their left tackle. Is he the guy you're entrusting with Carson Wentz, an injury prone quarterback with his success? I just, I don't get it. You know, I thought that Quiddy Pay was a good pick. And then you come back in the second round with a left tackle, you know, with a Jalen Mayfield out of Michigan or a Brady Christensen out of BYU. Instead, they take another edge rusher in Dio to Yigbo. I mean, that I didn't understand at all. And if you love Dio that much that you wanted to take him there in the second round, why not pass on Quiddy Pay in the first round, ensure that there's going to be one more high-quality pass rusher available in the second round, and take Christian Darisaw, who was on the board there at 21. I mean, Darisaw, who I had going 14th to Minnesota, by the way, great for Minnesota, being able to trade down nine spots, accumulate more capital from the Jets, and still get their guy, their blindside protector, Christian Darisaw. I love him. You know, when people talk about Panay Sewell, they talk about how he blocks angry. To me, Darisaw also blocks really pissed off. And that's what I think is going to make him a pro bowler at the next level. I love Christian Darisaw. Colts could have had him. I mean, they need some protection for Wentz. Right now, they've got Quentin Nelson, the future Hall of Fame left guard. I think moving him to tackle would be disastrous. Not that I think he would do a bad job. I just, it's not what he's meant to be. Leave him at left guard where he's going to be a Hall of Famer. They could have put a really good left tackle next to him. They failed to do so. It's the third worst draft in my opinion. Second, the New Orleans Saints. I mean, I just don't understand the picks uh, made by Sean Payton and company down in New Orleans. Peyton Turner in the first round. I mean, he's a guy who I thought had a low second to early third round grade. You had Greg Rousseau on the board. He went two picks later to Buffalo. You had Ronnie Perkins on the board who ended up free falling down into the 90s. I mean, I thought Perkins, not that he was a first round value. I thought he was higher than Peyton Turner on most big boards. I mean, to see Turner go in the first and Perkins fall down into the 90s, that was shocking to me. I uh, I don't understand that first round selection. Pete Werner in the second round, guy I had a fourth round grade on. Ian Book, I mean, just taking a quarterback in general. I mean, Jameis Winston might not be the guy long term, but right now that's a crowded quarterback room. You've got Jameis Winston, you've got Taysom Hill, who they all love in, in New Orleans. I can't stand him as a quarterback. Uh, to me, why crowded even more with Ian Book, especially wasting a fourth round pick you know I mean if you had a sixth or seventh round pick and you could take like a Sam Ellinger or something sure but Ian Book in the fourth round when there's other value to be had I just I don't like what the Saints did one bit and the worst draft from last weekend the Las Vegas Raiders and I'm not going to kill them for taking Alex Leatherwood in the first round it was a mind-boggling pick again this all comes back to I'm going to mention Christian Darisaw a lot because this is a guy who I love who was on the board there the Raiders need protection. I mean, they had a really good offensive line a year ago, and for some reason, they chose to dismantle it this offseason. Darisaw, I thought, was the clear pick, but in typical Raiders fashion, there is no clear pick. The reason I won't kill them for that, if you switch the guys that they took in the first and second round, if you make Alex Leatherwood their second round pick, Trayvon Mayrig their first round pick, I think it's 
formidable, right? I mean, you heard Mark Ross. He thought Mayrig was taken where he belonged in the second round. I had a first round grade on Trevor May- Trayvon Mayrig. I thought he was going to go to Jacksonville 25th. So I-, I think that if the Raiders with a pressing need at the safety position, if they took him 17th, took Leatherwood in the second round, they were in business. It's what they did after that, though, that baffled me. And, you know, we've got breaking news as I'm recording this. They just cut Jeff Heath. So that opens up an additional safety position, but they took three safeties. I mean, I just don't get it. They have plenty of needs. They need wideouts for Derek Carr to throw to. They need more protection on that offensive line. I just, I don't, I don't understand taking three safeties in one draft. That makes no sense. But you know, what did John Gruden and Mike Mayock do out there in the desert? That does make sense. Let's get to my three favorite drafts from this past weekend. And there were a lot of drafts that I loved. You know, I I can't say it enough. I loved what Minnesota did. Taking Darisaw there and accumulating extra capital to better their team in a division that could be up for grabs if Aaron Rodgers leaves. I love what the Chargers did. Protect Herbert, getting Asante Samuel, who I had a low first to early second round grade on. Getting him in the middle of the second round I thought was great. He's a stud. I think that the Chargers are primed to have a really good season. I like what my Giants did. You know, Kadarius Tony. I don't know how sold I am yet, but Ojolari in the second round, I absolutely love. And the trade down with Chicago getting two first round picks that, you know, I think Chicago will enjoy this trade in years to come. I don't know how much of an impact it's going to make on them in 2021. I don't know if Fields will step in immediately and be the guy. He might sit half a season, a full season under Dalton. So I think that the Giants could have two pretty good draft picks next year. I think the Bears pick could actually be better than the Giants pick next year. Great trade. I love it. But none of those teams crack my top three. My third favorite is actually a tie. So technically we're going with four here, but it's a tie for the same reason. That's why I'm not doing fourth and third. The Patriots and the Browns, they had tremendous value in this draft class. I mean, you had the Pats. I'm not even talking their first round pick because I don't love Mac Jones. And I think you know that if you listen to the show. I love Christian Barmore. I thought Christian Barmore, ironically, I have the Pats and Browns tied at third. I thought Barmore was going to go to the Cleveland Browns, 25th. I think Christian Barmore in the second round for New England is an absolute steal. And then here's a guy I've already talked about, Ronnie Perkins right? The edge rusher, the defensive end out of Oklahoma. This is a guy who, if the Giants didn't go edge, right? I mean, and the Giants, there were so many mock possibilities. They could have had Quiddy Pay in the first that would have taken care of that need at edge rusher, or they could have gone Devonta Smith, which they probably would have done if the Eagles didn't jump them, ended up going Kadarius Toney. I had Perkins to the Giants at 42 if they didn't address edge in the first round just so happened that Aziz Ojolari fell into their laps and that was a blessing. But Perkins in the 90s, incredible value for the Patriots. And then Ramondre Stevenson, Perkins' teammate, the running back from Oklahoma. I mean, here's a guy who, was he a reach in the fourth round? Probably. But when you have two guys like Barmore and Perkins fall into your lap the way New England did, go get the guy who you think is best suited for your offense. They obviously like Stevenson. I like him too. I would have liked him more in the fifth or sixth round. But at that point, when you're on day three, Get your guy if you like him and he's there. So credit to New England. Great draft. And for Cleveland, you know, I thought Barmore was the pick. I also thought Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, the linebacker who they ended up getting in the second round in the 50s, I thought he was the other possibility at 25. I was thinking it's between him and Barmore. They get Greg Newsom, who slipped. I had him going, you know, if Chicago wasn't able to grab a quarterback, I thought Newsom at 20 would have been great. I thought the Jets, if they didn't trade away the 23rd pick, would have been a candidate. Newsom to the Browns. He's just, you know, the word that I love to describe him is sticky, right? The guy makes plays. The ball always seems to find him. I think he's going to be great on that much improved Cleveland defense. Owusu Koromoa, such a versatile guy. The Isaiah Simmons of this year's class who, you know, slipped because of concerns uh, due to a potential heart issue that he's been dealing with. I mean, if he's on the field, he's a beast. He could play all over inside backer, outside backer, nickel safety. Like I said, he's Isaiah Simmons. who was a top 10 pick a year ago. And then Anthony Schwartz, the speed demon out of Auburn. I mean, adding him to that receiving core, that's just another phenomenal weapon for Baker Mayfield. So I, I love the Pats and Browns. I'm going to put them both tied for third. My second favorite draft. Now, I wanted to put this as my favorite, but I restrained because of injury concerns. The Miami Dolphins, right? It was a risky draft. I think by far the riskiest, but the upside could make this far and away the most talented draft class. I mean, first off, the draft capital that they had was insane. 
and they reunite Tua with Jalen Waddle. Now, admittedly, I would have taken Devonta Smith here if I was Miami because he just won the Heisman. He's a bit more of a sure thing, but Jalen Waddle, when healthy, is almost identical to Tyreek Hill. He's an incredible playmaker as a receiver, as a returner. He runs crisp, sharp routes, intermediate and deep. He's got sticky hands. I mean, Jalen Waddle can be uh, an incredible force in the NFL. So if he's healthy, amazing pick. Same can be said for Jalen Phillips, who they took the defensive end out of the U, the University of Miami at 18. I mean, this is a guy who started his collegiate career at UCLA, was forced to retire due to concussions, came back, and he's just a physical specimen. If he's on the field, it'll work out. The question is, does he get another concussion? Does he have to retire a second time? That's obviously a huge concern. But if it works out, man, those first round picks are dangerous. And then you look at what they did the rest of the draft, right? Javon Holland, the the safety slash nickel out of Oregon. I mean, this guy's amazing in coverage and he's a hell of a hitter. Uh, You can't miss. Liam Eikenberg shoring up that offensive line. They're committed to Austin Jackson at left tackle. I would have liked to see them get a left tackle and move Jackson to the right side, but Eichenberg will be the right tackle. Rob Hunt can move now to his true position from right tackle to right guard. And all of a sudden now Miami has a really good offensive line. Hunter Long, a really good weapon, you know? I mean, they could have used a receiver or two last year. They got Jalen Waddle this year. He'll join Devontae Parker and Will Fuller. Now you've got Mike Kosicki and Hunter Long as your tight ends. The Miami Dolphins who at 10-6 and six missed the playoffs last year, and I always say it's it's an absolute travesty to miss the playoffs with 10 wins. Well, this year, you could be looking at an 11-6, 12-5 ball team. Now, my favorite draft, and it wasn't as deep a draft as Miami. This draft, I don't think, has the upside that Miami's has, but it's because a team got their franchise guy. It's Mark Ross's answer. You know, it's the Chicago Bears. The Chicago Bears are the ultimate draft winners because they got the guy who can change and ultimately transcend their franchise. Justin Fields was the second best quarterback in this draft class. Mark Ross might even argue the best quarterback in this draft class. He is probably going to be the best quarterback in the history of the Chicago Bears. I mean, how amazing is it? Think about how decorated this franchise is in terms of NFL championships, in terms of defense and all that they've accomplished. They have not had great quarterbacks. In fact, they're the only franchise in the NFL to never have a 4,000-yard passer. Justin Fields is that dude. He's my guy. Now he's their guy. Justin Fields is going to be incredible. I even joked when the Giants were on the clock, trade Daniel Jones and take Justin Fields with the 11th pick. Well, they traded the pick and the Bears took Justin Fields. And then in the second round, they protected Justin Fields because they're committed to him to be their franchise guy. And they got him a left tackle in Tevin Jenkins, who I thought was a great pick for where they took him in the second round. I wasn't sure he'd be around when Chicago was picking. And what can I say? You got your quarterback, you got your left tackle. They didn't have another pick until the fifth round, but that was all they needed, right? By the way, sixth rounder, Khalil Herbert, the running back out of Virginia Tech. I really like him. He's explosive as hell. When he finds the gap, he could shoot through it. Him, Tariq Cohen, David Montgomery, Damian Williams. By the way, a guy who you could have argued deserved to win Super Bowl MVP two years ago for the Kansas City Chiefs, he's in that backfield. I mean, the Chicago Bears, this is a team that has made the playoffs in recent years on the back of their defense. Well, all of a sudden, I don't know if it'll happen in 2021, but come 2022, the Chicago Bears are going to have a pretty damn explosive offense. They are the biggest winners from this past weekend's draft. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks to Mark Ross for joining the show. That was an absolutely incredible conversation. Special thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in every week, guys. I'm Joe Serralo, and I'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.